Our scripture reading today for the standard of God's righteousness comes from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. Two scripture readings today, one from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 11 to 22. The book of Deuteronomy, also called the this book of Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 11 through 20. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command to you today lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you will surely perish like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you. So shall you perish because you 
would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12 is our second reading, also the reading which we're going to be preaching from. I'm going to pick it up a little bit, just a couple verses uh, before it, just to get some context because you reference them later. Start at uh, verse 5 of chapter 4. Paul's second, second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 4. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. God, add blessing to the reading, hearing, and preaching of His Word this morning. Let us pray. O Lord, by Your Holy Spirit, You cause the words to come into our hearts when You made us alive together with Christ to understand and believe them. You caused the apostles and prophets to write them. And You illuminate them to us for our understanding. That we may know what we are to believe about You and what duty You would require of us. We ask, O Lord, that You might So illuminate the word that we have heard today that we would receive it implanted as those whose souls have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. I, um, I served about 33 years in the Army uh, basically in um, active duty and National Guard and Reserve and um, among chaplains and among other ministers and it never fails for me at least to, to hear when somebody really wants to make a point they say this is biblical this is a biblical thing and I say well you know do you mean biblical like Cain slaying Abel biblical or do you mean what do you mean biblical um, the highest, I think, form of biblic, uh, biblical, the word use of the word biblical, it can mean many things. The highest is those things that only we can know through the, the Word of God. When we say that something is biblical, we ought to put a high standard on it. Uh, biblical can, mean, can be used to describe things like um, 
things to be believed and followed, but also humanly reasoned. Uh, Moses, um, he wasn't the first one to delegate to others, but in delegation to the rest of the nation or to the, those under you is a biblical thing. The truly spiritual thing, so the truly indiscernible without the, the Holy Spirit's help um, are those things which I want to talk about as, and that is one of the things we see today in this passage, a biblical idea. Um, there are truly um, biblical ideas like the Trinity. Um, can't be known, except the Scripture says so. God's holiness, uh, the way of life itself, um, what is good, what is wise. Um, all of these things come from the Word of God and they are biblical. Also, in this particular passage, what real power is, is shown us here. Even surpassing power. As Paul began chapter 4, he talks about receiving a ministry by the mercy of God. And he receives this ministry and it, it, it turns out that it's not like what people ordinarily craft and come up with when they want to start an organization or a movement or something. It was um, all done counter to human common sense. The ministry of the New Covenant is not about walking in craftiness or adulterating the Word of God or clever marketing or presentation or any of the other things we are taught about. It's not a commercial, it's not an ad, it's not a billboard. Even though you see pretty red billboards out there telling people to come to the house, his house on, on Sunday um, to uh, look at my book. It already, the Word of God already speaks, um, doesn't need help. It just needs to be proclaimed. The manifestation of the truth, that is, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God as we preach the Gospel, is power. It is power because it is God's message. It is power because it is God's Word. Rather than manipulate with pithy slogans, uh, the Apostle of the New Covenant is about what he said in verse 5. He preaches not himself, but Christ Jesus as Lord. He doesn't change, alter, clever, uh, sprinkle it with cleverness. He just preaches Jesus pure, clean, and preaches only Christ. The package that a message would come in in the era in which Paul lived, and today too, uh, often gets more importance than the message itself. My my daughter uh, used to uh, sneak the Nutella. You know what Nutella is? Okay, this is German Nutella. It's, it's much better. And, and uh, Nutella comes in a brown jar. And, and it, it, it isn't clear, though. And she would she let, put an empty jar of Nutella up there after she'd emptied it, thinking I wouldn't know that it was empty or something. It's not what it looks like. What's inside of it is nothing. In our world and in Paul's world, there were those who came and, 
and were all about what they looked like on the outside. They were all about how the gospel comes as uh, with certified people, with famous people, with with skilled and with um, uh, people with with endorsements from different places. Paul has nothing to do with that. In fact, in another place, he says, "Everything that was gained to me, gained to me, I count as rubbish for the sake of knowing." Christ Jesus, my Lord, and the fellowship of His sufferings and His resurrection. For God who said, he writes, light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge and the glory of God in the face of Christ. We don't get um, a, a, an empty box. We don't get a, a, a jar with nothing in it. It's not even the jar. It's what's in the jar that counts. That's what we mean here when we start to talk about what it is our purpose is today in this passage. Are we going to allow ourselves to be reasoning biblically about something called the surpassing power of God and how we take it up in our life? Uh, this, these passages, uh, seven, or this, these verses from 7 to 12, is about that very thing. Throwing off what the world would see as power and embracing and taking up the surpassing power of God, which requires not clever slogans, not lots of money, but reveling and resting in the weakness of humility and suffering and self-denial and just being submissive to the revelation of God as we find it in His Word. So we'll, we'll see here in uh, chapter Four, verses 7-12 through 12, that God's surpassing power biblically understood in four reversals of weak and strong. Now, reversals are kind of like um, oxymorons, you know, like a crash landing or water landing or um, jumbo shrimp, military intelligence, you know, humble Texan. Um, okay. Um, reversals are kind of uh, go. They go counter to what normally would be seen as the worldly way of thinking. Um, they, uh, what would I, if I said power to you? What's a powerful thing? You say, well, a nuclear bomb is powerful. Yeah. But real power, real power to change comes from God. Real power to to create, to sustain, to to save a, a, a sinning soul is. Only from God. They seem. This seems like uh, incongruities. You know, uh, there, there's uh, real power if we just got everybody in line and told them to believe the gospel. If we just spent enough money, said it the right way, done enough clever things, we would have it. That's not so. Paul even says, "You uh, Corinthians have these these usurpers coming to preach, and they preach themselves and not Christ. That's not power." And so we're going to see these four reversals. The first one, God's surpassing power, is shown in the possession of treasure in an earthen vessel. The word but there in verse 7 kind of comes out of verse 6. God is letting light shine out of darkness. He's talking about something that is glory. He's talking about the glory of God in the face of Christ that it's in our hearts and um, we give the light of the knowledge. Uh, it is, it is uh, a, a wonderful thing. But 
he says, and he continues this treasure, this light, this this marvelous power comes in a clay pot, in an earthen vessel. The treasure is the gospel, not the pot. The new covenant ministry, the permanent life-giving ministry versus the temporary condemning, condemning old covenant is a reversal. The reversal is how can such a treasure as the gospel, the, 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 the glory of God in the face of Christ, be contained in the most lowly container of that world. Uh, clay pots were kind of like the hefty bags of that, of that era. Um, that's where you put your garbage. Um, not fit for treasure, certainly. So when Paul says this, there is a, a real surprise that comes to the Corinthians' ears and ought to ours as well. He's placing treasure. This is how God works. He places treasure in an earthen pot. What is God up to in doing that? Well, um, it's an old lesson. Uh, it's uh, a lesson we find all through God's acts, all through uh, His, his uh, revealed uh, Word. He chose the Hebrews because they were the greatest and had the best school, the best legs, the best hair, that they were the biggest. No, He chose them because they were the smallest. How does He choose Gideon's company? How does He give Gideon the victory? by reducing. Counter to what you would do in a wartime situation, you make your army smaller, not bigger. That's what I want, he says. He chooses the last son, not the first son, to be his king in Israel. David, in his anointing, is chosen counter to what even his own, even his own prophet, God's own prophet would thought would happen to choose. How about the apostles themselves or even salvation? Salvation is not a mechanical process. It's a, it's a rebirth by the power of the Holy Spirit. It, it can't be quantified in ways the world wants to quantify it. It can't be controlled in the way the world wants to. Possession of such a treasure by earthly vessels is exactly the way God does everything. Lest anyone think that it was the power of man that caused salvation or will give glory to anyone other than God, which is what our Deuteronomy chapter 8 passage was about. God will not, will not tolerate His children giving glory to anyone else. Now, Paul certainly had detractors, but biblical thinking enters in when he responds to it. He says, the badges of genuineness that I have are these very things. They're suffering. The, um, the bad reputation, the, the spoiled reputation, the spoiled, the suffering, the arrests, the, all of those things. Because he's not seeking to have a good record that people would see. He's, he's serving his God and it is appointed for him to suffer. Later, Paul would say outright, validity is not from man's approval, but from God's. For we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with others who commend themselves, who measure themselves by themselves. It is not he who commends himself that is approved, but he who the Lord commands. One man and the truth constitutes a majority. One man and the truth 
is a majority. This is the way it has always been. He speaks through wild-eyed prophets. He speaks through uneducated men. He speaks through hardship and suffering and trust comes from enduring these things by His power. What we come to at the end is it's not that we are possessing the Gospel. The Gospel is possessing us. We do not have a possession here. We are the possession. We are the, the booty in the triumph as the Lord marches. We are the, are, the, are the spoil that He has gathered from the nations and the world. The elect are His. We, common vessels, are of no value in and of ourselves, but it has pleased God to place in just those kinds of vessels the treasure of the Gospel. That's just God's way. And no one can question whether it is God who is doing it. So whose ministry is it, Paul is saying? I'm not going to fight with the, those who would, who would claim to have an ownership of it. It is God's. And we should be thinking that it is God's ministry and marvel that anyone should listen to us at all. We clay pots as we talk about the Gospel to people. We are nothing more fancy, nothing more impressive than a, a vessel for garbage. Now, God, of course, hits straight with a crooked stick every time and He has made glorious that which is set for destruction. And so we offer Him reverence, we offer Him thanksgiving for the treasure and offer prayer that our stewardship of that treasure would be found to be in accordance with faithfulness. So first of all, we have a possession of treasure by earth and vessels. Secondly, a preservation of his own people in the face of earthly strength, opposition. You look at in verses 8 and 9, you read these, verse, these words. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Fellow clay pots, our breakable and common selves will fail if we rely on them to endure through the trials in this world. If we just grit our teeth and try to get through it, to figure it out with our own cleverness, we forget that we've been told we're going to have tribulation in this world. The one we are in has overcome it. Later on, Paul's opposition um, is seen by him and, and, and witnessed by him as part of what he was called to do, part of our call as well. In, in later in, in 2 Corinthians, he writes these words in, in chapter 6, he uses words like affliction, and hardship, and distresses, and beatings, and imprisonment, and hunger, and sleeplessness. In 1 Corinthians, he talks about being roughly treated and homeless. You know, the respectable religious authorities never would admit to that. But he does gladly because his lot is to suffer because his Savior suffered. Again, in 2 Corinthians 11, contains this list of all these physical hardships that Paul endured. Even more, point being that from every side and in every way and at every time and in every place, wherever he went, 
He was opposed. It was hardship. It was tough. And so for the sake of the Corinthians, he's saying, look, I am pressed down, but I am not crushed. Why? Because I serve the Lord. Because the Lord has called me to this. This is His business to do. I'm perplexed, but not in despair. Why? Because I don't have to know everything that's going to happen. I just have to follow my Lord. I'm at my wit's end, but I'm not without a way through. I'm hunted, but I'm not alone. There were those after Him, but the Lord was with Him. It didn't matter if they did take Him out. It was good for Paul. He was down, but not out. His victory was in serving faithfully the one and only Lord who called him to this ministry. Paul's enemies would say, look at this Paul, on the run, poor and badly clothed, downtrodden, constantly in trouble. Paul says, that's just the type of man God works through, not proud, not comfortable, not rich, not on the cover of magazines, but obscure, humble, and surrendered to the power of God in Christ. Um, there's a, a young lady that I've met in Sioux Falls since I've come here um, who um, she has a master's degree from Brown University in math and chemistry. She to be smarter than all of us. I think. Um, but um, she wanted to know what to call me because she had heard that, you know, okay, are, are you a chaplain or a pastor or a, a colonel or a professor or a doctor or whatever, whatever, whatever. I, I, I don't know. I'm Pat. I preached this sermon, this, this passage to her. She said, you're clay pot, Pat. That's right. I could put it on my business cards, but I don't think many would let me. Um, you know, that's just the kind of thing. We're, we're not... We're, we're to preach, pray, die, and be forgotten. Not to be famous. Paul was fearless because what he carried was indestructible. He wasn't indestructible. What he carried was not himself, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and he a clay pot for Jesus' sake. Even if he was to die, it didn't bother him. Or to die is gain. Right? So we see that God's surpassing power is shown in the possession of treasure by clay pots and also the preservation of God's own people in the face of worldly strength and opposition. Thirdly, it is the portrayal also, and this is in verses 10 and 11, of union with Christ's death as true life. Um, the early Christians had a lot of trouble being ridiculed for worshiping a man who was crucified on a cross. Um, they would cartoon him as donkeys. You know, um, so-and-so worshiped his God. And it's a, a man on a cross. Um, Paul glories in it. Why? Because he knows that there's also the resurrection in, in tandem with it. Verse 10 and 11, always carrying in the body of death, in the body, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. 
The last thing Paul was about was to preserve his own life. But his, his one mission was to spend himself for the sake of Christ in the proclamation and ministry of the Gospel. If anyone wishes to come after me, Jesus says, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's biblical. That's biblical. If we would have life, then we must die first. I have been crucified with Christ. And I... Galatians 2.20 I am not my own, we say. Bought with a price. The Holy Spirit who brings us to conviction of sin also by faith unites us to that death, that that death to sin, that death that Christ conquered sin with in the new life of of regeneration. 1 Corinthians 15.31 By the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I die daily. Trials and sufferings and persecutions are the lot for those who are in union with Christ. Because this world is where they are and if the world hates you, you know it hated Christ first. And indeed, this death is a constant work, isn't it? It's called sanctification and it's going to happen for the rest of your life. Now, no doubt, the Corinthians read this and they were dizzied by the sort of illogical statements that they thought they were. The reversal here is that even though Paul was fulfilling what God had laid out for him, suffering, the suffering did not lead to real death, but to life. Your suffering also leads to life in Christ. See, as uh, the man of great strength, Paul the, the persecutor, Paul the the agents of the Jewish authorities, he was dead to Christ, but he was full of the strength of the world, wasn't he? But when Saul died to Saul and became the little one Paul, the life of Jesus was then shown in his body as he suffered, as he was appointed to. And Paul was down, and he knew that even if he died, he was never out because the life of Jesus may be shown in him. The question is, in this reversal, are you dead to you? Do you, in your life, give glory to God in all things? Or do you keep just a little part of it for yourself? George Mueller, I don't know if you know, he is a 19th century British uh, German man who came to the British Isles and built orphanages in uh, today's money were millions and millions of pounds. Um, but um, he never ever sent out a fundraising letter, never ever had a capital campaign. He just, he did something kind of illogical. He prayed all the time. He was asked, what is your secret to being the man you are? And he said, there was a day when I died. I died to George Mueller. Insert your own name. So we see possession of treasure in clay pots. We see preservation of his own in the face of opposition. We see portrayal of union with Christ's death as real life. And now this whole scheme of divine reversal hits us between the eyes because we've got to be taught. This is biblical stuff. 
This isn't what we would have uh, thought would be logical. The last one is the gospel of prosperity. Okay? Prosperity of resurrection, that is. Prosperity of resurrection life through the gospel of the cross. When we ever say the cross um, in, in, from the pulpit, usually what we mean is everything encompassing all of Christ's work. I mean, we, we mean that. Um, but here, um, I'm meaning specifically death. See, verse 12, it says, So death is at work in us, but life in you. I read once somewhere that too many people talk about the gospel only from the Good Friday point of view. Um, I don't think that's necessary to have that criticism. I, I think that uh, we use the word cross and resurrection together often. Uh, we should use it often. Um, and the corrective is not to diminish the cross, of course, but to elevate it in view of the resurrection. There were hundreds and thousands of other people who died on crosses besides Jesus. Only one of them rose from the dead. So if death is at work, it's death of Christ is at work in Paul, in us. But life of Christ also is at work because he's the only one uh, where that happened. Clay, pot, frailty, and weakness, death to ourselves, to our own selves, in the carrying of the treasure in our clay pot body, it means that life is at work in you. The structure of, the, of this verse, death in Paul, life in the Corinthians. He leaves out the is at work phrase so that we have to supply it and emphasize it. It is at work in the Corinthians if they follow after Paul's death, life of death, after the death of Christ. Paul leaves this phrase out uh, so that they will understand that it is the death that they must also become part of. The risen Christ is at work in us by the measure of how we are dead to ourselves. If you're living selfishly, then the death of Christ is not very, very, very significant. If you, are, if you are living for Christ's glory, if you are not worried about getting credit or recognition or power or whatever else the world gives you, then you're on to something. Because when we die to ourselves, it means that this world is also something that we no longer long for. The reversal doesn't end there. In Paul's ministry, he... He sees death at work in him in a lot of ways for others. We, when we serve others, we, we, not ourselves, we, we're, we're displaying death to ourselves. When we witness of Christ and not of ourselves, we are, we are dying to ourselves. We're putting ourselves... Uh, we, are, we are taking a risk. When we pray for others and not for our own selfish desires, when we intercede for others and minister to others, we die to ourselves. When we forgive others the horrible things they've done to us, we die to ourselves. When we submit to Him and to others in the body of Christ, we die to ourselves. And when we trust not in our own understanding, but in every way acknowledge Him where He directs our path, then we also are dying to ourselves. You don't have any problem except you're you. I got the same problem. 
but we're being made into Christ. Inevitably, unfailingly, by the power of God, He has put that treasure in an unseemly vessel. He has preserved us. He has given us His everlasting life. So pay close attention to yourselves and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. As you do this, you will ensure salvation for yourself and those who hear you. This is the pastor Paul telling the pastor Timothy how to conduct his ministry in the church. The route to comfort and peace and joy is death of self. Defined in love, shown in the death of death, in the death of Christ. So God's surpassing power displays these four things. Possession of treasure by earthly vessels, preservation of His own in the face of worldly strength, portrayal of union with Christ, death as true life, and prosperity of resurrection life through the gospel of the cross. At the beginning of this um, effort, we set out to see how God uses the work, uh, the weak and the, the selfless and the humble rather than the strong and the proud to accomplish His aims. This isn't what the world calls normal. You don't, uh, you don't see anybody over 150 pounds on a billboard nowadays, do you? Thinking. I don't watch TV, so I don't know what time. Um, we, um, we need to join in the biblical thinking which doesn't look to the world to define things like goodness and right and power and life and love. The yoke of Christ is one which leaves self behind to follow the Savior. It follows the Savior alongside many others who are similarly yoked. We are not our own men. We are not our own women. We are to live as those dead to those things which the world counts as great. What the world says is so important, so elemental in Christ, we've died to them. Those elemental things, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I live, I live by faith. This death to self, clay pots, is a real, actual life. And it is the power of God unto salvation. It is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So be it. Amen. Let us pray. Oh Lord our God, we we long for perfection. We long for the day when when this this grind will come to a stop and we shall see you with our eyes as we have seen you by faith. So we simply ask, O oh Lord, that we would die to ourselves this day, that we would, we would cast our cares upon Christ, that we would believe what He says in His Word, that we would realize, O oh Lord, that serving You means 
Not success. Just glory. And may we, O Lord, dwell in unity with each other and we love to find this power as we bring the gospel to lost souls here and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Christ's name we pray.